does make my job a lot easier when you do that. Thank you, ladies. Let's give our young people a big, big hand, I tell you. I want to thank uh, Jake and Megan Zarl. They oversee our praise and worship team ministry. Uh, Jake with the band, Megan with the dance, and uh, helping to choreograph and uh, giving up a lot of days of sacrifice to practice. And uh, thank you both uh, for your leadership in our church and what you do to help make our worship to God beautiful and, um, and inspiring. Amen? Inspiring. Um, where, where's Abigail? Varghese, there you are. I tell you, watching you on that last song, I about just wanted to like, I could almost feel like I could dunk on that goal. Uh, that's, that's how inspiring you were watching you. Uh, I don't know about you, sometimes I like to watch people. That's part of why we have corporate worship is to be able to see how one another react to God and even in spite of whatever might be going on in our lives. Because God is still greater. And that song talks about he is glorified, he is lifted high, Jesus is risen, amen? And it shows on your face. So you keep singing, girl, you keep singing. Thank you for what you do. Awesome. Listen, I know we have a lot of guests here today. Some of you are from out of town, some of you are from not out of town. But please uh, do us a favor and fill out our welcome and connection card uh, before you leave today, and you can take it back to the connect table before you leave, and they got a $100 bill waiting on you there when you do that. Oh, wait, no, today's Easter. The golden egg is waiting on you there, the golden egg. Really? Wow. If there is one, let me know. That's pretty cool if, if, they, if we do that. That's awesome. Well, well let me, uh, again, officially welcome you to New Life Church this Sunday morning on Easter Sunday. It is, it is uh, great to see you guys. It really is. I'm so glad you, you came today. You know, that's probably one of the uh, prayers of a preacher that prays the most. God, let people show up. Second, to let God, may you show up. But second, let people show up, God. And, uh, and you did today. Praise the Lord. Have you guys experienced the presence of the Lord so far? Amen. God's presence is very sweet, very peaceful, but, but very transformational. When we encounter him, we, we don't stay the same when you encounter his love. And that's what today is all about. It's about celebrating the love of God in Christ Jesus. And, uh, and I, I, I tell you, this, this is my seventh Easter message since being the lead pastor of the church. And I tell you, it doesn't get any less nerve-wracking to preach on Easter Sunday. I'm always nervous every Sunday, but Easter, I get a little extra nervous about preaching this message. And we have been in a series called Miracles. For those of you who haven't been with us the last few weeks, been in a series called Miracles. There's actually 34 distinct miracles in the Gospels, and we are in John. We're in God, uh, John's Gospel uh, specifically is where we've been hanging out, and that's where we're going to be today. So I invite you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 11. If you've got a smartphone, you can do it there, a tablet, an iPad. If you've got it memorized, I want to hang out with you. And there will be some other verses that will show and flow on the screen as we go through today's message. But as I mentioned, we've been covering miracles 
34 in the Gospel, 7 in the Gospel of John, and today is number 7, and rightfully so. We covered the first miracle at the beginning of John where Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding. Who would like to go to that wedding? If you're brave enough to raise your hand. Then Jesus, we talked about the miracle of Jesus healing a royal official son from 20 miles away. He wasn't even there, but he just said the word and the son was healed 20 miles away. Then we, we looked, at the gospel, or looked at the miracle where Jesus healed a lame man who had been an invalid, paralyzed for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda, and he healed him. And then we looked at the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with just five loaves of bread and just two fish. Some of you are hoping and praying your Easter meal at home will feed everybody who's coming over. Uh, if you're like us, sometimes other guests get added along, along the way, and so we're like, Lord, stretch it out, make it last, make it last. And he did. He took five loaves, two fish, and fed 5,000 men. The Bible said not counting women and children, so there was like over 20,000 people there. Then we looked at the miracle that happened that, that same evening where Jesus walked on water to get to his disciples to save them. And then last week, we looked at the miracle where Jesus healed a man who was born blind. And today we're in John chapter 11, John chapter 11, and we're going to look at the miracle where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. A sign, a foreshadow of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, about miracles, one of the things that we have learned about this series of miracles and understanding is one one big thing sticks out and that is this don't find yourself seeking after miracles find yourself seeking after the miracle maker because if you find yourself pursuing and seeking the miracle maker you're going to find yourself in miracles happening all around you happening to you some of you are a real live miracle in and of itself i could point to several of you today you should be dead you should be in a hospital. You should be in a crazy house. I don't even think they call it that. Forgive me for the correct terminology. But you, you shouldn't be in your right mind. But because Jesus is alive and well and he offers hope and salvation and life change, you're here. You're here. Just the miracle of you breathing, you're here. And so don't find yourself seeking after all the miracles, after all the signs and after all the wonders. Find yourself seeking after the one who makes it all possible, and that's Jesus. If you get him, you get the whole package. You get the whole package when you get Jesus. John chapter 11. I've titled today's message appropriately after a book that I've been reading. It's called The Grave Roberts by the author by Pastor Mark Batterson. He's a pastor in Washington, D.C. There are people who tell the truth that live in Washington, D.C., And he wrote a book called The Grave Robber. And it really has kind of been the outline, the formation, and the foundation for this series that we've called Miracles. It's called today, it's called The Grave Robber. You know, this miracle, it not only foreshadows the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it also foreshadows what Jesus can do and will do for each and every one of our lives. You see, that this was 
something Jesus did for Lazarus, but he, this is also a snapshot of what Jesus can do for you and me. When things look over, when things look hopeless, when things look like they have ran their race and there is no way out, there is no way out, Jesus always makes a way. You put your hope and you put your trust and you put your faith in him. And that's about this story right here. You know, no matter what has died in each and every one of us from the hands of sin, suffering, or Satan himself, the grave robber, robber has come to give us our life back. And that's what I want to tell you today, how the grave robber has come to give you your life back. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. I thank you for this opportunity for this Sunday and what it means. This Sunday and what it means and what we celebrate is significant to our faith because if you would have just died on a Friday and stayed dead, we're worshiping a dead God. We talk about a dead God. We serve a dead God, and, but that didn't happen. You went to the grave, Jesus, and you buried our sins. You bore our sorrows. The transgressions of ourself were on you, and you took them to the grave. And when you were called out of the grave, you left all that stuff buried, the things we don't need in our life, the stuff that tries to get us down and separate us from you. You buried it. You covered it, and you buried it. You, you, you tore it apart. And you came out of the grave. You rose from the dead. And I thank you that you resurrected and you now sit at the right hand of God our Father. And today on this day as we open your word, I pray you speak to us. I pray and ask for revelation, understanding, and wisdom in your word. And may the unction of the Holy Spirit stir each and every one of our hearts to make this message not just synonymous with an annual event, an annual service, but make it synonymous with the way you have called us to live each day of our lives, a life of resurrection, a life of overcoming, a life filled with abundance of your spirit and your presence. God, where our hearts have grown cold and where we have grown distant today, warm us and draw us back, compel us to move back closer to you, I pray. And those of us who feel like we are close, Lord, keep us to not stray for our hearts are prone to wander. Keep us close, not only to the cross, but keep us close to the Christ. And may you be your honored and glorified in all things today. Everybody agrees with that, can say amen. Amen, praise God. Let's look at the very first verse, John 1. John chapter 11, verse 1, it says, A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, 
He stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. And skip over down to verse 17. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Already been in his grave, life over, buried, concealed in a tomb for four days. The thing about this that sticks out is Jesus' first response to getting the message that his friend Lazarus is dead. And he says, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death, but this happens so that God will get glorified through me, his son, Jesus Christ. And he says that because he loved them, he stayed. You would, you would really naturally think because he loved them, he would rush off, right? He would drop everything and immediately head that way. But it says because he loved them, he stayed two more days where he was before he went back to Judea, where he received the word, hey, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. You're four days too late. Anybody like coming up short on something? You go to buy something, go to pay for it, you're a dollar short. Hey, you got a dollar? Hey, you got 50 cents? I don't have anything else on me. That's like one of the worst cases to be in when you know you need it and you don't have enough to buy it but you thought you did and then you get to the pay for it and you didn't have enough to pay for it it's embarrassing sometimes but for Jesus it was not embarrassing for Jesus it wasn't that way you see although Jesus knew what he was going to do how he was going to do it when he was going to do it what he was going to do it still not it still did not keep the people involved in this story, specifically Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, it didn't keep them from feeling sad, grieved, or doubtful. Jesus knew what he, knew what he was doing. And you know what, friends? Jesus knows what he wants to do in our life today. He knows how he wants to move. He knows what he wants to do. He knows how to cause his plan and his purpose to come to pass in each and every one of our lives, but it still does not keep us from experiencing and feeling sad, grieved, and doubtful at different times in this messy life. Let's just face it, life is messy, right? Life, life is just messy. And so this story, I look at it in two parts. The first part I, I call the mess. The second part is what's called the miracle. So we're going to look first at the mess today on this Easter Sunday, the mess. And the mess is made up of three distinct things that steal, kill, and bury us, leaving us sad, grieved, and doubtful. Let's look at these three things. The first thing that's involved in the mess, the mess is made up of sin. Sin is messy. Sin is messy because sin leaves us sad because it separates us from God, our Father, our Creator. You see this in Jesus' interaction with Martha. Look down at verse 20. It says, When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. If only you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, yes, of course, I know he will rise again when everybody else rises on that day. I get that. But Jesus told her, looked at her a little more intently, and he said, no, listen, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this Martha? Yes, Lord, she said, I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. You see here with Jesus' interaction that Martha is sad. And in Martha's sadness, Jesus declares hope. He says, Martha, even in your sadness, I want you to understand something, that I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And in, even in our sin of sadness, friends, Jesus continues to offer himself to us. He offers himself as the resurrection and the life. He offers himself to us as the grave robber. You see, Martha was earlier found a little guilty in Luke's gospel. She was found guilty when Jesus came to visit her and her sister Mary. Martha was found guilty of working and serving and doing too much as opposed to sitting and resting and being at the Lord's feet. You see, like Martha, you and I can be guilty of that too. We can be guilty of trying to take life into our own hands. We can be guilty of trying to do too much, too soon, too fast, because we think we got to have it our way right away. Right? See, you and I can be guilty of this, uh, uh, of this because we tend to think sometimes we know what we need better than what God knows what we need. We tend to know how the outcome should really play out so that we are least affected by what could happen. And therefore, we try to do all that we can to protect ourselves and make ourselves and present ourselves in a way that will make us come out better. Is Jesus opposed to that? No. But what Jesus is opposed to is us taking our life into our hands and not letting him be our Lord, letting him be our guide, letting him be our God. You see, sin is not always labeled the grossest, worst things in the world. It is. But really, in its truest, rawest, most simplest definition, sin is anything that separates people from their God. Sin is anything that keeps us off track with God and gets us off track with God. That's really how we can narrow it down and we can really simplify all this because I think in our human, human minds, we like to label and we like to gauge sins. Certainly, there are greater consequences to sin than other levels of sin, if we wanted to call it that. But really, they all the biggest consequence in anything regarding sin is this. It separates us from God. It separates us from God. It causes us to get off track and stay off track with our God, our, our Father, our Creator. 
You see this in the very beginning of the book in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. That's where it all started. That's where it all originated from. In the beginning, after God created the heavens and the earth, and on the sixth day he created man, and he created woman, Adam and Eve. He named them, and he told them, you're free to roam this garden. You're free. It's paradise. It's beautiful. Everything you'll ever need is right here. He said, you can eat from every tree you want except for the one. And that's the one tree they ended up eating from. And when they disobeyed God, they sinned, they recognized their shamefulness, and after sewing fig leaves together to try to hide their shame, the first thing they did was they hid from God. Now, God knew where they were, even though he played along, and he said, hey, where are you? He knew where they were. He knows where we are. We can never hide. From God, we cannot play hide and seek with God. He'll always find us. He'll all, he always knows where we're going to be. And because of their sin, because of them choosing their life over what God had for them, God was forced to banish them from the Garden of Eden where the tree of life was planted. You see, sin, it'll never truly satisfy us. Our flesh wants things. Our flesh wants, has pleasures. Our flesh has cravings. We, our soul longs for achievements and possessions and all these different things. This world offers all kinds of appealing things to us, but it all comes up short because ultimately, friend, it separates us from God. It separates us from God. You see, when we sin and we continue to sin, it's like having a hundred pounds of grave clothes wrapped around our bodies. Sin buries us alive, and sin makes us a shadow of who we are really meant to be. It's not worth it. Sin is messy. Sin is just a flat mess because it leaves us sad because we're separated off track. The second part of this mess is called suffering. Suffering leaves us grieved because without hope, we drown in our despair. You see this in Jesus' interaction with Mary down in verse 32. Everybody still awake? Still following? Still tracking along? Verse 32, when Mary arrived and saw Jesus... She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. He asked, where have you put him, speaking of Lazarus? And they told him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Suffering leaves us grieved because without hope, we drown in our despair. And you see here, Mary was deeply, deeply grieved. In Mary's grieving pain, Jesus didn't accuse her. Jesus didn't blast her. Jesus didn't say, if you would have just had a little more faith, if you would have been just a little more patient, poor one. No, Jesus wept. And the, and the English vernacular here doesn't give it good de description. The, the true 
form and the true understanding of Jesus wept mean is this, Jesus lost it. Anybody ever have that ugly cry where, man, if somebody took a picture of you, you would not want that on Facebook? That ugly cry. I mean, this is awful that your face can contort and configure to let tears come out. Why? Because it's pain. Jesus saw Mary's pain, saw her deep grieving, empathized and sympathized with her, and what he did was he knelt beside her and he wept with her in her suffering. And friends, in our suffering, those of us who have Christ in us, those of us who are in relationship with Jesus, he walks with us. He talks with us. He does not leave us. He does not abandon us in our pain and in our suffering, in our grieving. No, he has suffered alongside of us. Consider Psalm 56, 8. You can follow it on the screen. David cried out and he said, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Saints, not one tear that we ever shed goes to waste in God's hands and in God's heart. He keeps track of all our sorrows, keeps track of all our pain, keeps track of all of our tears that he puts in a bottle. Think about it. From the very youngest of age to the very oldest of age, every tear we will ever shed counts to the Lord. He takes heart to your suffering. He takes heart to your suffering. He never abandons us. He never forsakes us. In fact, Jesus is God with us, and He is Spirit in us. In fact, the Bible tells us in Romans 8 that Jesus is always at work. God is always at work to work and put together everything for our good, those of us who love Him, and those of us who are actively engaged in His purpose for our life. You see, when you follow Christ and you're involved with Him and you serve God with His purpose for your life, God always sees to it somehow, some way to work it all out for your good, even when you don't know how and you don't understand and when the pain is overbearing and the grieving leads you down the road of despair and you shed your tears till you cry, till you cry and you can't cry anymore, God takes count of that. God feels that. God knows what that's like. He's a God who is with us. He's a God who sympathizes with us. He's a God who weeps and weeps with those who weep on this earth. David cried out in Psalm 27. He said, you know, I would have despaired unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I would have despaired. I would have let my suffering lead me down into a pool of drowning despair unless I believed that God is good. You see, the thing is, no one is exempt from suffering. Not one of us is ever exempt from suffering. Suffering is a part of this messy life, but suffering apart 
from the Lord is torture to our souls. All the pain I've endured in the short 38 and four months of, uh, of living on this earth, some pain, some misery, some torture, I can't imagine going through life without Christ. I spent the first 16 years of my life, I know, not long, short, I get that, 38, I know, 39, not very old, I understand that, but doesn't mean that my pain was not real to me. Doesn't mean it's not real. Suffering apart from the Lord is torture to our soul. It's anguish without answers. It's burdens with constant bereavement. It is cares without compassion. Suffering with Christ, however, with Christ, suffering with Him, it's liberating because it leads to resurrection life. Consider the Apostle Paul to his words to the believers in Philippi, Philippians 3, it's on the screen. I chose the Amplified because I want it to be louder to us today. He said, for my determined purpose is that I may know Christ, that I may know Him, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with Him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly, and that I may in the same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection, which it exerts over believers, and that I may so share his sufferings as to be continually transformed in spirit into his likeness, even to his death in the hope. Hang on, verse 11 that if possible I may attain to the spiritual and moral resurrection that lifts me out from among the dead even while in the body. Even while we are living, the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ can lift us out of the pain and the suffering so that it does not overtake us, so that Christ overtakes it in us. And consider Paul's words to the believers in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 4, it follows here. It says, we, he says, we are hard-pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. Now, he's talking to people who are born again, people who are saved, people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We may be hard-pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Suffering apart from the Lord is torture for our souls, but suffering with Christ, in Christ, is liberating because it leads to resurrection life. Suffering apart from Christ leaves us in our dark graves. Of despair. I told you it was messy. We know life is messy. Man, this story is messy. It's messed up. You got sin and you got suffering and man, you got Satan. Satan is the third part of this mess because Satan leaves us doubtful because he is the master deceiver. Leaves us doubtful. You see this in Jesus' interaction with the people who aren't mentioned by name. 
Verse 36, the people who were standing nearby said, See how much he loved him? But some said, Man, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Verse 38, Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. You see, in these people's doubts, Jesus was standing at the tomb prepared to do something. And when you and I find ourselves overcome and overwhelmed with doubts, Jesus is standing at our tomb prepared to do something. He does not take kind to the fact when the saints get deceived by Satan. He's prepared to do something, to turn the tide and to cause the truth to prevail in our life. He paid too high of a price to just let Satan have his way. Paid too high of a price. Went through too much. Did too much. Suffered way too much. But that's just how bad our sinful selves are. We cause that. And Satan is a master deceiver. In fact, you see, he deceived Adam and Eve in the beginning. He tricked them into believing something. He tricked them into a lie. You see, in Adam and Eve's temptation and their doubtful disobedience, God was prepared to do something. God still came looking for them. Even in their temptation, even in their doubtful disobedience, God still came looking for them. In fact, you know, Satan even thought he could pull one over on Jesus. Jesus was water baptized by, the, by John, the baptizer. And then it says, immediately he went out into the wilderness for a 40-day time of prayer and fasting. And while he was out there for 40 days praying and fasting, it said the devil came to him and tempted him. And he tempted him by starting it off by saying, you know, if you are the Son of God, you see, just right before that, when Jesus was baptized, God the Father spoke from heaven out loud. Everybody could hear it. And he said, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And here he goes into this wilderness of temptation, and, this, and Satan himself says, if you are the Son of God, three times, if you are the Son of God, turn the stones to bread. If you are the Son of God, jump off this pinnacle point of this temple. God will send some angels and help you. If you are the Son of God, then look around this whole entire world. It's yours. If you'll just kneel down and worship me. And each time, Jesus was prepared to do something. He was not caught off guard. And friend, he is not caught off guard with our temptations either. He's always prepared to do something. He came back with the truth to Satan himself. And that's what he wants to do in each and every one of our lives. When we get filled with deception and we are doubtful about God and we are doubtful about life and we are doubtful about this and doubtful about that, if we're not too careful and our hope and faith and trust is not in Jesus, friend, we will be buried in the grave clothes of doubt. Doubts tranquilize us and doubts paralyze us from pursuing our purpose in Christ. That's what they do. That's what 
Satan does in tossing out doubts and tossing out seeds of deception, trying to get us to discount and doubt God even exists, God even cares, God is even aware, or that God can even has the power and the ability to even do anything in your hopeless situation. God has the ability. And Satan tries to get us to doubt that. You see, it's messy. It's messy because... Doubts leave us in a place where we're paralyzed and we're tranquilized. But here's the good news. You get to the miracle. You get to the miracle. Worship team, if you'll help me wrap this up. You get to the miracle. Look down in verse 39. See, Jesus is prepared today because of what this day represents to believers and really to the world. Jesus is the resurrection and he is the life and he is prepared to turn our mess into a miracle. He's prepared to turn your messy life into a life of miracles. He'll stand at our tomb of sin, suffering, and doubt and turn things around. And let's look at the miracle. Verse 39, Jesus is standing at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across the entrance. And here's what he says. Jesus told him, he said, hey, roll the stone aside. But Mary, the dead man's sister, protested. She said, Lord, he, let me remind you, he has been dead for four days. This smell will be terrible. The smell will be terrible terrible the first thing about the miracle is this is that Jesus is prepared to command the stone of sin to be rolled away from our life you see in the ancient customs of this time the burial scene and the burial way looked something like this it was customary that the person who died be actually buried on the very day that they died there was, there was prescribed to be seven days of deep sorrow mourning and then 30 days of light mourning. And here it's day four. So Jesus shows up right in the middle of their darkest, darkest hour. The family and the close friends, they're wailing, they're grieving, they are sad and they are doubtful. Jesus shows up right in the middle of this worst time for them. And he tells them, roll the stone away. You see, the way they did things back then was they would, they would take their feet and bind them at the ankles with linen. Then they would take their arms and they would tie it to their body. Then they would just wrap the whole body in about 100 pounds of grave clothes. In fact, they said it's also possible that they put so much linen on the person's head that by the time they got done wrapping their head, their head was about a foot wide. It's not the best time to get the big head. So the mental picture is this, is really Lazarus looked like a mummy. Anybody ever seen mummies? Maybe not in real life, but on TV and stuff, in books, on Google. That's the picture of what Lazarus would have looked like. So remember that, hold that thought. Jesus said, roll the stone away. So Jesus is 
saying, he said, I'm about to roll the stone of darkness away out of your life, Martha, your life, Mary, and Lazarus's life as well. And you see, the thing this story shows us, this part of the miracle shows us, is that when it looks like it's over, it's not over. In fact, nothing's over until God says it's over. To you and I, it might feel like it's over. To you and I, it sure might smell like it's over. It might stink to high heavens in our situation. Our situation might be deep, deep, deep in stench and feel like it's over. It might be your marriage. It might be your relationship with your parents. It might be your job. It might be financial issues. I don't know. Fill in the blank of whatever feels like it's over in your life, where you feel like you have no hope, where you feel like you're always sad and you don't see a way out, and it might look over, feel over, smell over, but nothing's over until God says it's over. Nothing is over until God says it's over. And Jesus said, I know he's been in the grave four days, and I know he really stinks. But it doesn't change the fact of what I have come to do. I have come to remove the stone of sin and darkness out of your life. And the same is true today. And the good news about Jesus is this, that even when our life looks over, when it looks like situations are over, Jesus is standing at our tomb, giving us a second chance. Some of you in here today might think you don't deserve a second chance. Some of you think, man, you should have already given it up a long time ago. And for some of you, you feel like today, it, there's really, there's no hope. Maybe you feel like you've gone too far, done too much, committed way too many sins. But I want you to know Jesus was raised from the dead. He is the resurrection and the life, and he's standing at your tomb today to say, hey, I'm giving you another chance. People might not give you another chance. Friends might not give you another chance. The world will not give you another chance. But God will give you another chance. But we got to look at the second part of this miracle. Verse 43. He, Jesus then shouted, Lazarus, come out. Here is the picture of Jesus shouting into the tomb of where a dead man is, and he's speaking to a dead person, as if a dead person can hear a voice. Somebody forgot to, told, forgot to tell Jesus how to do this thing. Shouldn't he be over to the side, weeping and grieving now again with Martha and Mary and everyone else? No, Jesus is too busy about being the grave robber that he doesn't have time now. He did his grieving. He felt the pain. He was indignant. He was angry. And now he has showed up to do something about the situation where everybody else said it's over. Everybody else counted him out. And everybody else says he's been dead for four days and his life just flat out stinks. And Jesus says, roll the tomb away, roll the stone away. And he, then he says, he shouts, Lazarus, come out. Jesus speaks directly to that which is dead. C.S. Lewis was noted for saying this, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences. 
but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Jesus is prepared to call us out of our tomb of suffering. You see, he calls in a loud voice to awaken that which is asleep and dead on the inside of us. In fact, he used the prophet Isaiah and he told him to say this, Arise and shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord is upon you. You have a new life. Rise to the occasion. Rise to what I offer you. Come up from where you are and come out of your grave and prepare yourself to live a whole new life again. The grave robber has come to give you your hope back, to give you your life back, to give you your smile back, to give you your joy back, to give you what he has to offer you. Even in the middle of pain, even in the middle of suffering, Christ gives us hope to come out of pain caused by suffering in order to bring us closer to him. It doesn't mean that pain and suffering always cease. What it does, it personifies that Jesus is greater than our suffering. And in the middle of suffering, he's still worth pursuing. He's still worth chasing. He's still worth going after. And he's still worth following. Because Christ gives hope in the middle of our suffering. But then you got to look at the last part of this miracle. Jesus, verse 44, it says, The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes. Remember, a hundred pounds of grave clothes on him, ankles bound, arms tied to the side, his face wrapped in a foot-wide cloth, and Jesus didn't stop, and he wasn't satisfied with looking at a man wrapped and looking like a mummy. No, this is what he said. He said, unwrap him and let him go. The third part of this miracle is crucial because Jesus is prepared to unwrap us and let us go from the grave clothes of our doubts. You see, this is the picture of what happened with Lazarus. Bound by grave clothes, Lazarus couldn't walk out of the tomb. Lazarus couldn't run out of the tomb. You know what Lazarus had to do to get out of the tomb? He had to hop out of the tomb. He had to hop out, wrapped in his grave clothes, looking like a fool. You might not be able to run from your pain. You might not be able to get out of your sin on your own and walk. But if you will just hop. It is Easter, right? If you will just hop. Profound revelation. If you will just hop to the Lord. You might not even be able to limp and crawl. You can't run and you can't walk. But if you can just hop yourself to the loud voice of Jesus shouting your name. Come out, come out, come out. And then he says, unwrap him and let him go. Jesus is all about giving your life back. Where it once was robbed, where it once was taken, where your joy was destroyed. 
destroyed and your hope was buried six feet under and you lost friends and you lost loved ones and you lost yourself along the way, the grave robber has come to say, unwrap them and let them go. I'm not satisfied in letting them stay bound. I'm not satisfied with letting them stay the way they were. No, I've come to give them their life back. They'll smile again. They'll rejoice again. They'll live again. They'll be free again. They won't be the way they used to be, but they will be brand new because the grave robber, my friends, has come to give you your life back. I once was lost in sin, but Jesus took me in. If we will hop out of the tomb that Jesus calls us out of, he'll transform us into a brand new person. And here it is, our hearts won't hurt anymore. Anybody tired of your heart hurting? Our souls won't stink anymore. Anybody ever tired of life stinking? Doesn't mean you won't ever have to go through stuff. It just means when you do, you've got the grave robber with you, walking beside you. And when he sees, when he sees grieving, trying to approach and crawl up the shadows of your back and latch onto your soul, he says, no, not here. Go find somebody else. Go get somebody else. Go get somebody else because depression and oppression and grieving from the suffering they experience. No, my saints have, t have cried and they have shed tears and I keep track of them and today I'm keeping them. I am protecting them. Our hearts won't hurt. Our souls won't stink. And our lives, they won't be lifeless anymore. Let's stand to our feet.